0: the business of software podcast sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think find out more at businessofsoftware.org hi this is mark littlewood and another super exciting uh, episode of the business of software podcast um, I'm joined today uh, by Leon Barnard, um, who is from a company which most people will know, I think, uh, balsamic And they have one of the most impressive marketing operations um, on the SaaS planet. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit uh, with Leon about uh, how they do marketing and how they Uh, stand out and are are different. But um, without any further ado, let me uh, welcome Leon. Hi, Leon. Hi, Mark.
1: It's uh, nice to be here.
0: Really nice to see you. Where are you today?
1: I am in sunny Anaheim, California. You didn't need to say sunny if it's Anaheim,
0: (laughs) right? It's just assumed. Um, It was a
1: a little bit cold today, if you want, you know, about five degrees Celsius, maybe. maybe Wow yeah wow that's, uh, pretty good i
0: mean us English we have to mention the weather because it changes as the hours go by but uh, um nice place to nice place to be so it's uh, reasonably early morning there i hope you've uh, you've had some coffee um really really pleased to uh see uh see you today and uh, we're going to be digging as i said into um the magic marketing behind uh balsanic um but uh, I really wanted to, to start off by asking you to um, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do um, and your, your your previous experience and, and uh, what you what what you're doing at Balsamic.
1: Sure, sure. Um, so I lead our education team here, uh, which is a, a team that's only existed at Balsamic for about maybe three or four years now. Um, I've been with the company for nearly nine years. Um, I worked as a UX designer for about 10 years before that in a variety of industries. Um, and I was really brought on, uh, and I, I was a huge fan of balsamic during um, my design days. Um, I really gravitated towards low fidelity um, design. I was never much of a pixel perfectionist and uh, it really worked for me. Um, so I was brought on kind of as a, a subject matter expert, uh, for the tool and, and both for and, and about UX, but not really to do UX within the company. So it was kind of a new role. Um, I've, uh, worked in a, uh, on the support team. Um, and also I was, uh, on the documentation team for a long time doing a lot of tutorials based on, you know, my knowledge of the product and also my knowledge of the use cases for it. Um, you know, because it's not enough just to go through the, the features. It's going to be useful to uh, actually show how a real product might be designed. Um, and then eventually transition to this new team, which is all about, um, education, which is not pe- not teaching people how to use the product, but how to become better designers. Um, even if that's not what their title is. <laughs> um,
0: so you were doing design and UX in the, in the past. Um, and I think you were it. was it Sun Microsystems at one point? I worked at it? a
1: company that was acquired by by Sun. uh-huh
0: oh, echoes of history. Huh? Um mm-hmm. the once. Um. So yeah, Sun and and uh, also in automotive. So fairly broad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked for, of,
1: uh, for a, a research division within Toyota, um, and that was an eye high, eye opening experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> i'll probably do
0: another podcast yeah separately on, on
1: uh, that so
0: you talked about uh, you were a huge fan of the uh, balsamic product and the and the tools um and this kind of concept of them being very i mean they are very deliberately low fidelity can you just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about why you as a designer, Love that as a as a concept because it's slightly uh, counterintuitive if you're not on the inside because people love bright and shiny and flashing stuff, don't they?
1: They do, and it's um, I think really it all comes down to effectiveness. Um, You know, it's kind of I learned the hard way from my first UX job. Our team we had a little UX team and we had this great design library with lots of cool graphics and and prototypes and things like that, and then I looked at our product and i didn't see it I didn't see the those uh that work anywhere in it, and I <laughs> realized that the team was basically completely ignoring all of these things because they either thought they were too hard to build or it was just they were not ux was not uh integrated into the into the process at all um, and the uX team would just say. Oh, we're giving them these great designs and they're, they're ignoring them. And, but I realized what was missing was like communication and actually working together. So it was very siloed. And so I was, you know, I just actually started just going and hanging out with some of the developers and going to their desks and saying, Hey, what are you working on? And not even bringing anything over, but, um, kind of, uh, you know, I called it kind of a, a bottom up, you know, or a developer first um you know kind of approach or you just sit in on the meetings and just get get them used to having you around you know and then and then eventually they'll say oh i don't know how to you know i hate designing forms could you you whip up a form design for me or whatever so really starting with where they were at in the process rather than just handing off some fancy design and saying here build this when you know we hadn't even built that trust so um so that's kind of how I realized that, you know, these pixel perfect designs weren't worth anything if they weren't getting built. And so I started, this was before Balsamic. I I started doing designs like in PowerPoint. I would make little widgets out of PowerPoint and, and hand them those and not worry about the styling because they had their style sheets or whatever. Yeah. And then when I discovered Balsamic, I was like, yes, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for because that's what the developers want. They want just, Show me where things go, what the labels should be. Give me a, a rough kind of skeleton and help. You know, we can talk through it rather than just, than just throwing something over the, the wall that has no connection to reality necessarily. So, um,
0: yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Um, uh, because, tell me about tell me what people use balsamic for. And I mean, clearly there's a sort of massive. Group of people that use it for designing products, but I I know lots of people that use it for all sorts of other purposes. What's your, what's your sense of what people do with it?
1: Yeah, you know, I was a, I realized that I became a bit of an outlier um, as a UX designer who relied primarily on Balsamic. Um, it has a you know it can get it has a bit of a uh, gets a bad rap within UX designers that it's kind of limiting or you know it's hard to. Uh, it doesn't look good if you put it on your portfolio. It's it's hard to kind of feel like you're you're a credible UX designer if you just uh all you do is these low fidelity sketches. So um, which is actually fine. Pelde's uh the founder of the company, his his vision was to uh create a tool that would allow product managers to kind of communicate their ideas visually. So um product managers are our main audience, uh, maybe some developers, some freelance developers a lot of um, entrepreneurs and people who have an idea for something and they want to mm. communicate it. Um, so UX designers are actually a, a small portion of the people who use it. Maybe they'll use it to kind of like get started or in an agency setting, if they're kind of talking to clients in the early phases, um, because at a certain point it does kind of stop, you know, there are certain things you can't do with it and that's very deliberate. Um, mm. But um, the main audience is, People who are not designers who maybe are closer to the business or the development side and they really want to uh, have something visual that they can use to communicate their, their ideas since they're talking about software and user interfaces. So it's, um, that's kind of the main, um, the main use case of it.
0: Interesting. So I also know uh, people that use it for things like
1: copywriting. Actually, that's something that we've discovered uh, recently. We had no idea until about three or four years ago when we saw a few people blogging about that. Um, And also uh, writing talks, which, I mean,
0: I've run conferences and it's, there's a, you know, if you're doing your first talk, you probably open PowerPoint or you go off and you get um, uh, some, uh, I've got a Mac now, so I should know that. Um, key- keynote? Keynote, yeah. Um, or you go and get one of these amazing kind of presentation things. And it's absolutely the worst place you <laughs> can possibly start because before you know it, you're into the detail of some stupid little image or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, when I've done talks in the past, quite often the way that I've, I've done them is to put lots of post-its together. Um, Mm, You you have like one idea on a post-it. and It's that very deliberate lo-fi thing. And you suddenly realise that you've got far too much content for the time you've got. Um, Mm. And yeah, I actually have moved from a a big pile of post-its to using Balsamic to do things that I'm doing. And it's less about the kind of look and feel of the slide deck necessarily Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely about the kind of message and the why of the thing and it really it's a super helpful thing for um that kind of thing as well Mm -hmm. so so how many uh, do you have any sense of how many um people are non-standard balsamic
1: users uh well non-standard in that sense um probably not very many i think definitely the bulk are people who work in software, and they're doing some uh, interface design work. Um, but I think copywriting is really growing because there was kind of a, a gap between copywriters who are writing for the web, and they're just handing off text documents to, you know, the the design team. And then it's such a different thing to have um, the text on a page or, you know, in a notepad kind of thing versus on an actual website. And so they're they're kind of doing it in the other way in that they're using balsamic to show where the words would fit. They're designing the words, but they mm. want to see where the other things will be on the page. So um, uh, I think that is, you know, as more people are starting to catch up to that and more, more copywriting is happening on the web and people are using the web to learn about writing on the web, that's kind of growing um, but as far as I know, I think our core audience is still kind of the business analyst, um, product manager, um, mm. you know, kind of entrepreneur um, person. But it's always fun to hear these stories. Some guy, uh, you know, designed part of his kitchen or did some, you know, kind of some architectural drawings oh, wow. for house repairs. So, um, fantastic, mm. fantastic.
0: So uh, would it be fair to say that? most people in products would know what balsamic was. They would have an opinion on it, um, whether think, they were an active user. I mean, how how
1: is your awareness in the market? I mean, I I would say fairly large. Most people that I've talked to who might be the type of person who would use it have at least heard of it. So oh. I'd say it's, you know, because also it's been around for uh Thirteen years now um, so um, it's pretty well known um, in the software industry um, for at least people who have heard it or, or, or used it um, but then it's also fun to see I saw an email yesterday from someone who just discovered it for the first time, and that's pretty cool too so um, you know we haven't um, we haven't reached market saturation quite yet
0: but your your marketing is obviously very effective on um... Some level, and I guess this is what um, we 're we're here to talk about really is that is that you i think are recognized as an organization that does great marketing and has this great position in the marketplace that is super helpful friendly it 's not too big, not too small, does what it does it people really kind of. At it and that means that there are probably people that go, yeah, it's a bit basic because uh, I want that super you know, hyper realistic, but um, it really works, and you're one of those relatively unusual products where people really love it. Mm-hmm. Like, there are things that you can, there are bits of software that you can use that are a pleasure, um, to use, and we've used it a little bit as a, as a said and there's just little things that make you go that's great mm-hmm. and sort of encourage you to, to use more so I'm going to talk a little bit about the, um, the 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 marketing piece in a minute but um, how did you how did you when you first started at Balsamic what was the big draw for you in terms of you know you personally having come from a, a UX background because you weren't doing UX when you started.
1: Uh, correct yeah so it was a big leap for me and it was a little bit scary because I always thought I would do UX design for life um and um yeah I thought I would be doing UX for life and uh but it's nice that UX is still the main part of my career even though I'm not doing design on a Mm. day-to-day basis um I'd gotten to a point in my career where I was I felt like there wasn't a lot more for me to learn as far as designing interfaces. Um, I went to a uh, talk by Jared Spool one time, actually, and I talked to a little bit about it at the end, and he said, oh, production work. You were doing production work, and I never thought of it that way, and that's exactly what it was. So I uh, kind of plateaued there, and so the next step was maybe some kind of management, or I I didn't know what, but I, I didn't want to get into the people managing yet. I wanted to be Doing something in kind of a yeah. on, the, don't, on don't, a ever thought, <laughs> don't ever lose that thought, Leon. Don't ever lose that thought. Uh, well, I just I be, talked to so many change. managers and everybody said, oh, I just, I missed doing the thing that brought me into mm-hmm. this industry. Um, so, and certainly at that point in my career, I wasn't ready to, to jump into that. So I saw this opening at Balsamic and I've just been a huge fan for a long time. So I was, lo- I was, I wasn't very happy at the companies that I was at as as far as like a culture fit. So yeah. uh I loved the idea of working from home. I had read all of felt these blog posts. I felt like I had a sense for the culture. It was the right size. It was only um I can't believe it. It was like ten people when I joined. Um so wow. it just felt like a small little uh, you know, family and I could just kind of uh it just felt very comfortable to me, at least from the outside. And then I talked to people and Exactly what it it seemed. So, it just seemed like the right uh, you know fit for me personally at that yeah. time. And then um, it's kind of like I didn't really care so much what the work was, but then I found that I, I actually really started to enjoy it. Um, doing a lot more writing, thinking about design, talking about design. Um, it was fun. Yeah. So you were you were bought
0: in to do some of that and build. like you, know, you were part of the marketing engine or becoming part of the marketing engine?
1: I think my initial title was uh, UX documentation and support. <laughs> so it was kind of like uh, a little bit of all of those. And so it was all uh, to kind of, um, you know, it's all customer facing. So interacting with people as somebody who had been there, could speak the language, could make people Feel like they're not just talking to an, an agent who's just going to look up their query and their database and return some, you know, pre-written response or something, you know, someone who is a, a human being who could understand their problem and talk to them the way that they talk about things. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, at that point, that pretty much was our mar- marketing. <laughs> and it, it still is a huge part of it. Um, yeah. But a long time as far as the product marketing, it was just word of mouth, so. Yeah. Um, so everybody, every
0: SaaS business wants to know, I always kind of joke about the, you know, what are the seven sexy secrets of SaaS success? And they're always, there's always these like marketing playbooks and things, and they're all about funnels and metrics and data. And you can't have got where you are and being as successful with it as you have been, without having an extraordinary um, data analytics capability and one of the most advanced funnels on the planet. So let's talk about that. For
1: how long will we need to run through it? Oh, yeah, very, very sophisticated. We've got data analysts crunching numbers 24-7. We've got AI programs. Um, no, believe it or not, we have none of that. Um, uh, I think Peldy checks our analytics once a year. <laughs> uh, he wow. really encourages us not to um, sometimes we, we peek at the analytics just to just to see, but he 's not interested in in any of that. He never has been um, and you know a lot of it is is luck it 's timing it's product market fit it 's Peldy understanding the audience it's it 's a lot of a lot of things but it's you know you can 't just go out and say to any company. Don't look at your data, don't have a funnel, don't do marketing, any of that thing, uh, those sorts of things. So, you know, you were calling us a successful marketing team, but I feel like there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, if I, this was a marketing podcast, <laughs> I don't I don't think the, the message would be the same.
0: <laughs> so you, you what's your CAC? What's
1: your LTV? What's your churn? What's your... We have no idea. We look at our revenue is going slightly up and to the left. And that's really, you know, that means that people are still buying the product. Uh, you know, our our support team is very close to the customers. We listen to people. We um, do a lot of, we've been doing a lot more uh, user research and talking to customers directly, you know, qualitative data, if you will. Cool. So talking to people, um, you know, it's better to spend time Spending a few hours talking to one person, then look at the data for, you know, 100,000 people or something like that. That's wow. kind of all these idea that by really hearing people talk about things in their own words, um, you can get a much better idea about what's working and what's not.
0: I was teasing you a little bit because Tapeldi is hilariously <laughs> always, Oh, how many visitors does your website? I don't know. Um he really doesn't. He has no idea. Um, and he, yeah, he really doesn't. Uh, he he doesn't care. But there's something in here, right, that is really working, and the the qualitative piece is really powerful. I think the other thing that you've seemed to have done an an incredibly good job of, and I don't know whether this is, you know, by some overall, uh, you know, overarching, cunning, strategic plan from the beginning. Um, or whether it's something that has evolved, is you've built a really engaged community of users, as you say, word of mouth is a big mm-hmm. thing for you. Um, yeah, your customers are your uh, are your advocates on 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 many levels. Is and, and that feels like you've moved much more toward uh, you know a, you've never really been focused on the funnel. But you've always had this vision for the ecosystem around the product. Would that be fair?
1: Um, yes. Yes. Pelde understood very early on that the the um, there are a lot of things uh, that can be copied in software. So mm-hmm. we've had, we've seen tons of clones come and go, even products that had features that we didn't have yet, or that were you know better in a lot of um, objective ways than our product. And so um, he's invested, but we've chosen to invest a lot in things that are harder to copy, you know, so the culture, yeah. the people support, um, you know, even our our business model and being profitable. I mean, the way that we do marketing would not really be sustainable if we had, um, you know, VCs and investors breathing down our neck for rapid sure. growth. You know, I mean, Peldi would be the first person to t- tell you that we're leaving money on the table, left and right. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're not only concerned about conversions. Um, so in that sense, it's, you know, we could be much better at marketing, but it's also, it's kind of a, a radical, but also not a very radical idea that you can just build a product that you like and that people like, and you don't have to get every person in the world to buy it. Yeah. So, you know, if we had, a, if our customer base was, Uh, 10 times larger we would have a harder time with that community aspect and we would look Mm -hmm. at people more as just numbers uh, or visitors rather than people so it's you know it's and then start start
0: your user conference for five thousand dollars a pop to come along and listen to sales pitches from everybody and Mm -hmm. take over the streets of san francisco or something (laughs) and yeah it's a different it's a different sort of thing. Has anybody in the, you know, has anybody within the business ever kind of challenged that as a, you know, have you ever had these kind of conversations of, Hey, we could do this bit better without compromising this stuff.
1: Um, we have people, w- w- there's people within the company who are interested in some of the metrics, like at least whether, you know, so the education team that I lead, we have a, there's a whole section of our website, it's called the Balsamic Wireframing Academy, and hmm. we write articles. And we, you know, we are sometimes curious: is anybody actually reading these? Like, what what are people what what are people kind of gravitating to, or less interested, more yeah. or less interested in? And we have some, we have a little feedback form on our website and things like that. So some people are curious about the the metrics, and they're curious about um maybe you know more about into the details of revenue and profit and um but everybody is kind of on board in general with everything most of our employees have been with us for a very long time and there's kind of an agreement where everybody kind of gets it yeah yeah that's um we we haven't had any big you know kind of internal disagreements about the way that we operate in general so, your role now is education, which is part
0: of that kind of is', is I don't know that's almost a is that even a marketing role i I suppose it fits within your marketing activity on some level, but I think as a business, you're very comfortable with this kind of concept of doing good things to um for the for the right reasons and and kind of good will come of it, and there's much less direct kind of attribution of X happened, uh, then Y, then Z. Um, You'd say much more kind of, hey, if we can get people to use this stuff and use it more and get better at it, that is a great end in itself.
1: Yeah, it's very indirect and it's very like um, a picture or long-term thinking. So I think maybe that's the, the difference in that, you know, we are creating, um, we are writing articles and making videos that help people use our product better. Um, you know, which of course, and it should make our product more attractive to them or, um, you know, help spread that, that word of mouth. <laughs> so it, you know, it is altruistic in the sense that we genuinely want people to get better at what they do. Um, you know, but uh, we are putting our own money behind this and we, um, uh, you know, we, we feel that it is good for the company as well. But the difference is that, is that we don't really connect the two. So we're not looking at anything related to how is our um, education content driving our sales. We have no <laughs> idea whether the work that, that I and my team do have any impact on sales whatsoever. Um, so that's never been the objective. We're not measuring that. We're, we're trying not to be uh, sneaky about, like, making our – um, educational content you know kind of a veiled sales pitch so oh. we like to talk about wireframing in general ui design in general it's not really like look at this cool balsamic feature that's only available on oh. balsamic that helps you do this thing so it's very very uh low pressure um you know, because, and we don't we don't have any um yeah we don't really focus on a lot of that stuff
0: But it's it's a fascinating, it's a really interesting positioning because people see that and they like it and they really get it and they feel they're going to get great information and that there's a positive feedback loop. Is is there anywhere where that um, kind of concept came from? (laughs)
1: Um, Yes, uh, a long time ago, I think probably maybe around the time I was hired or before, um LD watched Kathy Sierra's talk the business of software I believe and read her book badass which is really oh. all about how people um don't want to just use your product they don't want to become better users of your product they want to become better at their jobs which uh or better at doing what they uh either enjoy doing or are paid to do and uh it's kind of radically simple and that like duh. You know, I mean, but within an organization, you get so hooked on this idea that, oh, people want to use our product and we need to add, add features so they can spend more time in our product or make them like our product, you know, using our product more. But you know, at the end of the day, this is kind of a UX way of thinking too. They just want to get their job done. So if you help people, what they feel good about is not that they did a good job using their product. They feel good because they did something cool that maybe they didn't even think they could do and so that's this idea of like you know you want people to feel like a a badass you want people to tell their friends about what they can do not what your product can do yeah Um, i
0: mean that so yeah kathy's i mean it's a fabulous book um badass making users awesome and Probably, if you're listening to this podcast, you'll have seen the talks on the uh, boss website as well. It's that I, I think that kind of key concept. Don't don't make a better X, make a better user of X. And she talks about cameras, and you know, don't make a better camera, make a better photographer. And there's some really, really kind of, and I think this has had a, a huge influence on on uh, lots of. Lots of organizations because, uh, I mean, technical people, software people by nature, by instinct, quite like features Mm -hmm. or talking about the features and they've built this stuff and they know how much has gone into it and they, but they then kind of are somewhat removed from what that means for the, for the users. And, you know, it strikes me that the kind of lo-fi thing And as well, is a a piece of that in so much as if it was a high fidelity tool, it would take much longer to produce things. That may not even get the same as good a result, but even if they were producing the same results for the for the things that you're trying to do. They're taking up more time. So people have less time at home being bullied by their children, in my case. uh, And it's that there's some there's some really there's some really interesting stuff around there. And I I, I think. So you see education as part of it's part of your product. It's not a marketing activity. It's very much kind of a core part. Would that be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think that I would not have the, the job that I have here without that book. I mean, it's basically, you know, that's such a key part of it is help people become a better user of X or a better product manager or better, you know, founder, whatever it is. It's not about um, a better user of our, our product. And that's why we're not writing about the product. We're writing about how to um, do better things, um, you know, create better user interfaces uh, regardless of which product you use or how to use wireframes better. Um, but it's definitely a huge, it, it is, it is part of the product. Peldi calls it one of our, one of our pillars actually. Like yeah. along with the product is just one, the product that we sell is one part of our product. But so is the, you know, establishing a, a long-term company, you know, that can continue to thrive and survive and teaching people about UX design and supporting them and, Helping the UX community at large, like these are all things that we invest in equally.
0: So what's the, what percentage of conversion of readers do you
1: get to paid to users? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be curious to know, just at some point I just want to know that my job is, uh, um, it's so, on.
0: it's so, so refreshing to have that kind of conversation. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You're not going to know, and it's not important for the for the organisation, which uh, you know, is a is a very powerful but slightly intangible thing in and of its um, in and of itself. So, so your mission is really to make. It's not
1: to make a better tool; it's to make a better designer. Yes, absolutely. And one thing that we try to focus on is like, what is the, what are the articles that we wish had existed you know for us you know or what what is the thing that we would want to read um you know so it's really focused helps us focus on quality not like what mm. is the be best for the interest for the for the business uh, but what what's missing out there what what would actually really be helpful for people um and yeah. it's nice just to not have that pressure to be focused on on conversions right so you're not this
0: great marketing genius with a great arch plan to take over the world after all let's 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 accept that for a minute leon and put it to one side let's uh, let's take it that uh, you know education is part of part of this process for you uh guys how did how how did you get into that role within balsamic and and how do you think about it? What are the things that you're doing? How do you?
1: Um, I really try to bring my experience as a UX designer to it. I think that one thing that's really missing in education is um, how things work in the real world. Um, And, you know, I think we talked about a little bit with um, when we were talking about discovery um, that um, Teresa Torres talked about discovery where her book is good because it talks about, habits and things that you can apply in real situations rather than if you read a a guidebook on how to do user research or whatever, uh, it's going to be very thorough. And but once you get out into the working world, you know, especially, uh, you know, when I started, you know, user research, everybody would say, we don't have time for user research. We don't have money for user research. So you could have a Ph.D. in usability testing and they're going to say, no, we, we can't do any of that stuff, you know? And so that's where this idea of like guerrilla usability testing and hallway usability testing, do a wireframe and show it to people in the office or go out in front of Starbucks and have them, you know, buy them a coffee and have them try to use your app or something like that. You know, that's real world stuff. And I think that's true in the world of design as well. So I really try to, we really try to focus on what are the, Things that are going to give you the biggest bang for the buck, the most uh, return on your time, because mm-hmm. we're assuming that everybody who's using our product has a lot of things to do. They're very busy and they have a specific objective that they want to accomplish. And, um, you know, they're not we're not necessarily concerned about how to build the perfect uh, user interface. It's about how to make things better, uh, you know, incrementally. Um, in a way that is going to that's feasible in the way things really work, you know. And and I know what it's like to work in the software uh, industry with pressure from sales and marketing and development contra- constraints. And well, we can't do that because the technology doesn't support it or whatever. So, um, you know, really trying to focus on um, on practical things, not theoretical things. Um, and that mm-hmm. so that everything we create is tried tries to be very practical very real world. Uh, we like it when people tell real world stories of things that work rather than just like how things are supposed to work. Um, mm-hmm. So it's nice that, so I, we have another full-time educator on the team who has a UX background similar to mine. He's got stories, you know, and so being able to tell those real world stories um, and say, Oh, I learned this the hard way that this is a good way to do things, you know? And so we, we can bring yeah uh, the five years that it took to figure out that this is the best way to do things. And we can uh, send, reply that in an email or something if they ask about it, you know, so yeah. just bringing um, the world, world, real world experience.
0: That's amazing. So in terms of education, which is this piece that you're doing, what are the, what are the kind of core elements of this, this is obviously your blog, the community, but, but I mean, how does it sort of split up in your, um, your view of uh, the, the world and, and what would you like to do more of?
1: Um, I want to increase kind of user interface design, you know, literacy, um, help people understand better what design is. Um, Cause a lot of people, especially who are not designers, misunderstand design. They think of it as making things pretty um, mm-hmm. so kind of figuring out, uh, looking at design as a way of, you, you know, just kind of some basic principles and ideas that anybody can learn and apply to make software better. That everybody can be involved in in the design process. That it's not this kind of gated community only for designers. And it's really it's just a way of thinking. And so it's not it shouldn't be intimidating. And the the basics of just user interface design, low fidelity design for communication, that mm. communication is such a big part of it as well. Um, so it's kind of a different way of thinking about design, where the goal is really just to A, improve the overall quality and usability of the product, and B, find a way that is good to communicate across roles who all have very different ways of communicating, ways of thinking. Um, mm. the design can actually be kind of spread out across the organization uh, if you think about it the right way. I,
0: know, that's I very concise nice way of putting it, but. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's very good. So in terms of, I'm not thinking about the return because you're, you're not having any of it. Um, in terms of the amount of resource, the amount of effort that you put into the different things you do, can you talk a little bit about, uh, where, where your focus is and where the effort goes?
1: Yeah. So. I and my colleague Billy we write articles um, about some basic principles. About you know, he wrote some good articles about how to design for e-commerce sites and a good principles for doing uh, data designing data tables. Um, we've also had some good video series that we've worked with external people um, on. So Donna Spencer, who's uh, a longtime UX designer and an information architecture expert, did a re- has done a really great video series for us on just designing navigation and designing layout. And so it's very, uh, it's very all about the basics. It should be something that anybody can understand. Um, we brought in Paul Boag to do a few series for us about breaking down the design of certain websites and kind of giving his thoughts and feedback on them, um, which is really useful. We do these live wireframing sessions where we have nonprofits we give our free licenses to they can Mm -hmm. spend an hour with us because these organizations typically don't have designers. So we'll give them an hour of our design time and walk through their problems and show them how we might approach that design problem. And then we share those on our YouTube channel. So other people who are in the same situation, I have a nonprofit website and I want to try to get people to donate, you know, how to, uh, how to do that and how to focus on the right things. Um, so we try to go do a few different angles. We started doing webinars recently. Um we did a good one about content first design uh recently. Um interesting. And, and also is there just some explaining about what wireframes are. Yeah. Um is there
0: something that you're is there something that you'd like to do? Is there I don't know what's the what's the sort of next phase of this, what's the, mm-hmm. what's the
1: evolution? I think we would like to do more um, where we kind of meet people where they are. So either webinars or um, we're actually just wrapping up some user research interviews with a lot of customers to learn about what they want to learn more about. So, um, you know, I mentioned that we do a lot based on our own experience. Yeah. So we'd also, We'd like to really talk to people one-on-one and hear what they really want to learn about and, really get more connected to customers and hear what their real problems are. So like I said, we just finished a really good um, set of user research interviews, and we're going to be looking at the results and talking with the researchers soon to hear from real customers what they really want to learn. And so mm. just create and figure out how they want to learn it. Do they want us to do a podcast? Do they want more webinars? Do they want more videos? Um, you know, how can they best learn this material? So I think all we want is just more connection to our customers so not looking at the analytics how many views are these articles getting but talking to people about where they're really struggling and how we can be there to kind of you know bridge that gap between Mm. where they are and where they want to be as far as their their knowledge that's interesting and you don't you're not kind of measuring
0: metrics and um but you will Presumably we'll get some sense some feeling about the impact that some of this stuff has. has Do you get much customer feedback about that do people talk about what they're learning the problems they're solving
1: um, we get I got an email just uh yesterday from someone who had read one of my articles saying, "Oh, this is really helpful, but I had some questions from this, so you know we make it very easy for people to contact us so I get we get direct emails. Sometimes we get, um, comments, um, or questions and support, you know, and if people leave comments on any of our YouTube videos, we, you know, reply to them and we take those suggestions, um, you know, and, and try to address them. But, you know, because we're not looking at data, we're not really sure what's resonating, but we love it. when oh. these people are sharing our articles. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, we don't really know, but we have, we have a, an idea yeah
0: is it do you have a channel within the organization where the kind of warm and fuzzies get shared
1: we do we do have a, a love fest room oh cool <laughs> cool
0: that uh that's a really nice i mean i i guess that um must be quite a busy a busy place but um yeah and, and what about um you know, do you get sort of a sense from people of You know, the, the things where you're not helping, helping in the same way, are there those, are those, are there spots where, you know, you think, oh, I wonder how we can help with this. We can educate this. You say you're doing, um, you're doing user interviews and things, which is obviously a good, um, a good way. Do you get a sense
1: of where the kind of sticky bits are for your customers? I mean, we do, we have people who complain and we have angry customers just like anybody, um, but I don't think that's what you're asking because with our product, because it's very limited on purpose. Sometimes we are, we can say people to people, our product is not right for you. You know, sometimes they go in with the wrong expectations. And I suppose that means that we should, we need to do a better job of communicating our message and what our product does and doesn't do. But as far as like what we would like to be, where we're, those kind of sticky bits. Um, I think, you know, we can't, I think a lot of people wish that we could really help them with their problems directly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we just don't have the resources for it. So, you know, do, you know, it would be great if we could do one-on-one support, or we've had people say, can you come into our organization and do some, you know, um, uh, give us a walkthrough or things like that where you, that you might have with, um, you know, large companies, you see their website and it says, call us for a demo. And, you know, they have whole yeah. you know, pre-sales teams. Um, you know, but really there's just two full-time people on our team. And so a yeah. lot of the content we have, we create out of necessity has to be kind of like one to many, you know, we're creating yeah. a, a video. Um, and we can't do a lot of things. We have to say no to a lot of things, unfortunately, where it's like, can you give your time just to help me with this one thing? Um, you know, do a, sure, a and so we do have, we have office hours that we started doing recently. We have our live wireframe sessions. So we try to make time for those. Um, but, you know, it would be nice if we had a larger team or somehow could do, we're trying to find things that are more closely aligned with people's real actual problems. So, yeah. you know, we we do, you know, some live Q&As at our webinars, sometimes at events. We have some time where it's like Q&A time with us, but, you know, it's it would be great if we could just, Spend 24 hours a day talking to real problem, you know, real customers or sitting over their shoulders and watching them work and that sort of thing. Um, you know, but we just, we're a small yeah, team.
0: but there's, uh, you know, small team limit, uh, and the, I wonder whether, you, I mean, presumably you have super users. Um, I mean, this was a, I mean, if you look at HubSpot, um, and I'm not suggesting you have the same goals or, anything what they you know what they had spent quite a lot of time doing was working with people that were going to use the tools with other organizations and they built up this partnership network of marketing consultants essentially Mm -hmm. and that became a a very powerful very powerful kind of channel for them but also then a very positive feedback lead because your users are Finding new work and new clients as a as a result um do you have if someone says to you can you recommend a good wire framer?
1: is that something that you you do at the moment or? we do I believe on our good? website on our support site we have um, some links for um you know like uh, uh upwork and these other sites where people where where you can kind of contract find people who are specialties in certain areas. Yeah. So we have some links on our website where people can find things. Um, we do have a few good super users, like in our forums, mm. in, in our balsamic Slack channel where they will actually answer people's questions just because they use the product, they love it and they, yeah. they know the answer. Um, actually several employees, you know, started that way. I was active in the forums for a while. I answered. Oh, them, brilliant. But, um, I think our QA person started by a very by being very active in the forums. So, um, you know, we do have some people who like to help other people in the, in the forums, um, just because they like the product. Um, and I think that there are people who specialize in, in wireframing and low, low fidelity, but it's still a little tough because a lot of people don't actually know that that's what they're looking for. So that's maybe part of one of our communication challenges is they will hire yeah, a UX or a UI designer yeah. and say, design this for me when really what they need help with is articulating the problem and kind of, you know, they need somebody to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they think they yeah. just want somebody to design the thing, but they actually want somebody to help them visualize their own thoughts and ideas or talk them through the process of, um, yeah. you know, I think one of the most helpful things that a UX designer can do is ask questions, you know, who are the users of this? What do they want to build? What do they really care about? You know, and then it's like, then it starts yeah. the conversation on the right path. You almost don't even need to talk about the design because once you go through the, if you ask the right questions, it kind of like you kind of figure it out or maybe yeah. even figure out, oh, this doesn't need to be an app. <laughs> you know, you might save yourself a lot of time and money by realizing that the problem can be solved uh, in a different way. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's very interesting.
0: Well, uh, look, really fascinating. Um Fascinating conversation, and I think some some really interesting food for thought. I I think the thing for me that I'm, I've known Balsamic for a long time, and I, I I guess I've known this on on some levels is I've always seen you as being great at marketing, but in a in a good way. You no, know, I think you can look at you can talk about some companies and go, "God, they must have brilliant marketing because they 've got a rubbish product that is absolutely <laughs> everywhere <laughs> <laughs> um, and i you know you 've got a, a a very different um, a very different thing there and it's it's really interesting to have a, a an insight into uh, how you go about that. Are there any other companies that you uh, look at and admire and go do you know what this is these people have a very similar way of approaching these things and they're doing it really well? Who are the who are the people that you um, pay tribute to slash copy slash?
1: I think we have something on our website. I'm trying to remember um, some of the ones that have really inspired probably, but I think a huge part of it actually comes down to business model. And I think mm. companies that are uh, primarily self-funded or, and, and profitable since day one where you don't have to answer to people who are expecting a return on their investment, it just helps you create a much more sustainable company, um, and I think that allows you to be kind of a more more human, a kind of a, a you know, it changes the mindset of your organization. As someone, we you know, we are providing, we are lucky that you will buy this product from us because it means that you must like it, you know, and so it, it kind of this mentality of like if it's not a good product you're not going to stay in business so yeah. um you know just being the kind of companies that that we would want to work with ourselves and and there are other companies out there and i think a lot of them you know kind of have the same philosophy or or have the same business model where we're just kind it's like this this the old fashioned way you know you make a product and and sell it um and hopefully people buy enough of it so that you can keep going keep going um,
0: Rather than happens. just
1: living on borrowed, um, you know, investment.
0: I think that's a, it's very balsamic and it's very boss. And, uh, I've been, mean, I've always said there's, there's nothing wrong with taking venture capital. It's neither necessary nor evil. Um I think there is always a challenge when people don't understand what that means for you as an organization and uh you know it's just hugely refreshing to have these conversations with people that have very consciously taken that um that different path uh leon thank you so much um can you just share the uh, url for the website um because we've been talking about balsamic. So I hope that's not going to leave a sour taste in some people's mouths if they uh, Google the wrong thing.
1: (laughs) Yes, balsamic uh, and our company name ends in a Q, so you can go to balsamic, b a l s a m i q dot com for the product, and then balsamic slash learn for our wireframing academy uh, with all of our educational materials on it.
0: Uh, and you've actually got your own personal website, which I love the URL for, which is relatively easy, is leon.land.
1: Yes, <laughs> leon.land. Leon. Land. Um, it just has things that I've written about. Um, a lot of it's on the Balsamic website or, or other places, but I love to write and talk about this stuff. So Wonderful, wonderful.
0: Leon, thank you so much. Um, I know you're uh, contactable and people... I mean that, I think that's one of the really interesting things about Balsamic as well, is that people have been or been there for a long time. Uh, they respond and, and, uh, always open to, um, picking up conversations with people. And I know you mentioned the, uh, you know, during the conversation here, you do these uh, wireframing sessions. Uh, mm-hmm. One of our, uh scholars this year from the conference is just about to do one uh with you and i hope we'll be able to share that um between us as as well because i think they've got really fascinating uh, business and it's and it's great to see uh, see you kind of doing those things i know they're hugely appreciated and they they really make a difference to people and and have an impact on the world so thank you so much um Leon, head of educating the world of design um, from Balsamic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information,
1: go to businessofsoftware.org.